welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. Welcome to our Greener Arbitrations podcast mini-series, a platform where Reed Smith's international arbitration lawyers will be exploring the legal and technical issues involved in reducing the environmental footprint of arbitrations. I am Alison Eslick, an international arbitration lawyer at Reed Smith's Dubai office. And I am Vanessa Tiffry, an international arbitration lawyer at Reed Smith's Paris office. In these episodes, we will hear from leading arbitration practitioners and external speakers and discuss insights, news, and trends relevant to greening arbitration and the challenges that are entailed. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to our latest episode of Arbitral Insights and the first in our Green Arbitrations miniseries. This is Vanessa Tiffry again. For the launch of this miniseries, which coincides with World Earth Day, we elected to discuss carbon emissions in line with this year's theme for World Earth Day, Invest in Our Planet. More specifically, our topic is everything you've always wanted to know about carbon emissions but didn't dare ask. Why did we choose this topic? Because when we think about how to reduce the environmental footprint of arbitrations, we all think about carbon footprint or emissions. It's a very hot topic at the moment, with a number of firms attempting to reduce their carbon footprint. When speaking of arbitration more specifically, the reference in the matter is the Campaign for Greener Arbitration's Guiding Principles, of which Reed Smith is an institutional signatory. These principles encourage international arbitration practices to reduce their carbon emissions by, for example, avoiding the use of hard copy documents, correspondence, etc., all the while reminding that email itself has a carbon footprint, looking for opportunities to reduce energy consumption and waste, using, where possible, suppliers and service providers committed to reducing their environmental footprint, using video conferencing facilities for meetings and hearings whenever possible, rather than holding them in person, and even offsetting carbon emissions for any arbitration-related travel. The Campaign for Greener Arbitrations also goes further and has adopted last year a number of protocols for arbitrators, conferences, hearing venues, institutions, and for law firms. So for this podcast, we have decided to go back to basics to truly understand what carbon emissions are and how they can be reduced. To do so, I am delighted to be joined by Adam Headley, a partner in the Energy and Natural Resources Industry Group in Reed Smith's London office. Adam came as an obvious choice for us to discuss these issues, as he is a brilliant lawyer specializing in notably UK, EU, and international environmental, carbon market, and climate change law matters, Adam and the Carbon team are doing a lot of work in the carbon space, so a warm thank you, Adam, for accepting to participate in this podcast. Thanks, Vanessa, and thank you for uh, asking me to join you for this discussion. I'm really pleased to be here. So let's get started. My first question to you, Adam, may seem trivial, but it is at the core of the issue. Could you explain to us 
maybe in layman terms, what carbon emissions are and how they are created? Sure. So I think the first point to make is that carbon emissions really is shorthand term for emissions of not just carbon dioxide, but a range of other greenhouse gases. Um, So methane, nitrous oxide, you might have heard of as well. And the thing that they all have in common is that they're all harmful to the environment, harmful in the sense that they are a catalyst for climate change. To put it simply, I guess the more of these greenhouse gases there are in the atmosphere, the more radiation the atmosphere absorbs. And so this is what causes global warming. And of course, we are all aware of of the well-documented effects of that. We think of carbon emissions in their most basic form, usually. So actual carbon dioxide emissions and, and other greenhouse gases caused by activities, the really obvious one being burning fuel. But that's only really part of the picture. It might be perhaps more helpful to, to use another term to describe the wider impact of carbon emissions, and that's carbon footprint. Again, another term which I think we're all pretty familiar with, but perhaps don't fully appreciate sort of wider suite of emissions we're trying to capture with that term. So the, the carbon footprint is essentially all of the carbon emissions associated with the full life cycle of an activity or of a product. Um, So we're not just talking about the fuel burned in doing something, but also the energy input, the the carbon emissions associated with the materials used, the transportation of people, uh, for example, and and equally the use of a product or the disposal of a product when it becomes waste as well. So this, this wider suite of carbon emissions, which form the carbon footprint of something, are what we refer to technically as scope one, two and three emissions. Scope one and two are really the most kind of basic direct and indirect emissions associated with an activity. So I mentioned fuel being burned, which is a classic example of of scope one. And scope two is usually the power and and heating inputs to doing something. But actually, scope three is probably the most interesting one. That's where it's thought that the vast majority of carbon emissions occur in any business. And this is basically everything else. Um, so all other indirect emissions associated with an activity. And that can be a vast amount of different things. But for example, we might be talking about business and events travel or transmission of documents, um, waste generated, use of paper, water and IT infrastructure, for example, as well. So a, a few things, you know, you've, you've already mentioned in the introduction, Vanessa, which are a huge part of carbon footprint, but which aren't necessarily thought of in the same way as as the kind of more obvious measurable carbon impacts of an activity. Interesting. So my next question to you is how are they measured? How are how is this carbon footprint measured? Is there a unit of measurement? And how do we determine the carbon footprint of something? Sure. So measuring a carbon footprint is as you might imagine quite a technical and can be quite a complicated process, but there are various ways and means to do that. And, and indeed, you know, various published methodologies, which any business can use to be able to, to do this. So at a, at a quite basic level, how you measure your carbon footprint is firstly, you, you identify your sources of carbon emissions as a business. And this might involve you know, this is where you need to make a, a judgment as a business. Am I only going to look at scope one and two? 
which is what a lot of businesses are limiting their their carbon reduction activities to? Or are we going to look at scope three as well and everything else, which which makes it a lot more complicated, but equally means it's a lot more valid in terms of representing the full impact of, of a business. So we make that decision about what we're going to measure and what those different carbon emissions uh, sources are from our business. Once we've done that, we then need to go out and, and look at these published methodologies and calculations, as I mentioned. So you have to choose not one, but probably several different methodologies which apply to the different types of emissions you have as a business. So, for example, with, with scope one emissions, where we're talking about carbon emissions from fuel burned, we would look at the quantity of fuels purchased and, and apply a particular emissions factor to that. Equally, with, with scope two emissions, which is about power inputs, we would look at the, the meter readings um, from a business and, and again, apply the particular factors which apply to electricity and to gas used to arrive at a number. And then with scope three, it really depends on what you're measuring and, and what we're talking about. But if, for example, we're talking about business travel, well, then we look at miles flown by passenger and the type of air travel used to do that. And again, there are published factors which you can use to, to work out the carbon footprint of, of that particular piece of travel. So once you do all that, as you rightly asked, what do we arrive at? Well, it is there's a unit of measurement and it's essentially the weight of all of the carbon emissions. When I say carbon, I include all other greenhouse gas emissions. And that could be in tons or in kilos or in grams. But typically for a business, we're talking tons or kilos. So that's broadly where we land in terms of how we determine the carbon footprint. And just to give you perhaps a couple of examples to put a bit of color to that. So you already mentioned emails in the introduction. It's estimated that for every, so for your average email, you generate about four grams of carbon dioxide emissions. So it might not seem like a lot, but obviously cumulatively gets very significant, particularly if you're talking about email chains where you're replying all. The same person that made that estimate about the carbon footprint from an email also calculated the average business user creates the equivalent of a 200 mile car journey and sending emails every single year. So quite a significant potential impact. Another interesting number which I found was that it was by an energy company which estimated that if every adult just sent one less thank you email per year, it'd be equivalent to taking over 3,000 diesel cars off the road. Um, so quite, quite significant again. To use the example of printing, um, so there's an estimate that 100,000 sheets of A4 paper has a carbon footprint of about 6,000 kilos of, of CO2. So six tons, you know, quite a, quite a large amount that you might not anticipate, bearing in mind how much paper is used by business in any one year. And finally, I just wanted to mention um, data storage as well, which is another area, a huge area for law firms and for those acting in, in litigation, but also the wider kind of business community. And this statistic came from the US Department of Energy, and their study said that transferring just one gigabyte of data produces around three kilos of CO2 emissions. So one that we might not expect to, to be quite so high, but, but certainly is. Wow. Others are enormous, especially, well, thinking about arbitration, 
we often have lengthy submissions and a lot of exhibits, especially if you're going into technical arbitrations like construction arbitrations and the likes. And well, generally we are often required to issue them via email, of course, but also in hard copy, at least for the arbitrators who are often three. And also, in addition, we also have to send a USB key containing soft copies to the opposing parties and to the arbitrators. So I would imagine that that for each of our submissions has an undeniable environmental and carbon footprint. Absolutely. Absolutely. And all you know, very, very relevant to the you know, examples of those measurements which I gave. And I, and I guess, you know, that there are some obvious points that which come out of that in terms of what you might look to do. And the most obvious one being to try and avoid sending out hard copies of, of documents because of not just the, the footprint of generating, uh, producing the paper, but also of transporting that paper around places. So a huge kind of logistical impact as well. And you mentioned as well about USB sticks, which is obviously a, a safe form of encryption, but is not without carbon footprint itself. Um, so you still have the generation of of a product, that the USB stick, and then it becomes waste at some point as well. And, and then electronic waste is becoming an increasingly difficult issue for the European nations to deal with. And then finally, if we're making decisions about how we send large attachments as well. Perhaps the the obvious point there is that attachments have a much greater footprint than if, for example, you send something by um, file transfer link, uh, which provided it it has the same level of encryption and and confidentiality associated with it is going to have um, a significantly lower carbon footprint. Well, this leads us to my next question. How do we reduce carbon emissions? It is a vast subject, but maybe you have a few tips you could give us. As you say, it is it is a vast subject, and but but it is it is being done and can be done either on a on a very large scale. So we see for for a number of years now the the growth of various types of large scale carbon reduction or carbon removal projects. But there are also ways to do that on a much smaller scale. And, and when we, t- we think about this within the arbitration context, there are a huge number of smaller scale wins, if you want to call it that, in terms of carbon reductions that can be achieved. And I'm going to re- rely here on some of the recommendations made in the Green Protocol for, for law firms, chambers and legal service providers working in arbitration, which I think you already mentioned uh, which is a very good source of the range of different things that you can do. There are some obvious ones like trying to reduce energy consumption um, in the office environment or through the way that the office environment is used. Equally, uh, going digital is another obvious one, uh, trying to do that both in terms of use of documents, but also the way in which you conduct meetings or provide training or developing the skills of your employees to to be able to use digital technologies. At the other end of the scale, there are the more kind of organizational measures which you might take. So encouraging employees to recycle things, which is not just about providing the means, but it's about changing the culture within a, a business as well. 
and encouraging responsible travel as well. Again, I think we're all aware of the carbon footprint of the travel that we do, but it's about changing our approach towards travel and our, and the, the perception of having in-person meetings as, as opposed to, say, virtual meetings. And more broadly, it's about incentivizing employees to go to greener behaviours. Um, so beyond those things I've just mentioned, many firms have cycle-to-work schemes or a much more hot topic, you might say, is is working from home in light of the, the various lockdowns we've had. If, if, if there's a, I dare to say, any form of silver lining to what we've experienced in the last two years, it's it's about the transition towards home working and, and what that's achieved for, not just in terms of some lifestyle benefits for people, but also in reducing the carbon footprint that employees have otherwise from traveling into the office. So, for example, if carbon emissions cannot be reduced, for example, if I absolutely need to travel for a hearing, it is possible to offset them. How does that work? You're quite right. And we start from the proposition that in most scenarios, it's not going to be possible to completely eliminate the carbon emissions from a particular activity. So we've developed this term net carbon neutral or net zero, which means we have perhaps taken measures to reduce carbon emissions at source, but we're then turning to using carbon reductions achieved elsewhere to offset that last part, those residual carbon emissions from the activity. And I think we've all come across this perhaps in one way or another. So the example of of business travel, um, most airlines now will ask you if you want to offset your carbon emissions. And by that, they essentially mean you're going to pay them to go out and acquire carbon offsets to the same value as the residual carbon emissions from your flight, thereby effectively neutralizing the emissions. And it might be worth me just briefly explaining what we mean by a carbon offset. In in the very literal sense, which I've really just explained, this is about neutralizing the carbon emissions of an activity through the use of carbon emissions um, achieved elsewhere. But how we do that or how we document that is through the use of a what we call a carbon credit, uh, which is also often refused to as a, as a carbon offset. But essentially, this is a, a certificate which documents the fact that a tonne or a kilo of carbon emissions have been avoided or reduced through a particular activity. And whether that's through the protection of uh, forests or planting forests, or through the use of a technological solution to reduce carbon emissions. So that certificate, that carbon credit, has a monetary value. And acquiring that certificate means you also acquire the right to claim you've achieved a carbon reduction uh, or a carbon offset. So even if you aren't the one that actually did that, you by acquiring that certificate, you, you have that right to do so. So carbon offsetting, in that sense, is the process of acquiring those certificates and the carbon reduction claim that comes along with them. And then we have the global carbon market, which has grown up around that process to to facilitate the transfer of those certificates. You were saying that we were able to offset via carbon certificates and that these carbon certificates could be basically bought. So that means that there is a sort of carbon market. I know that this is a great part of your work. Could you please explain to us how this works? 
Yeah, so governments and companies have, have recognised for a long time uh, that in order to stimulate investment in low-carbon economic development or encourage developed nations to reduce their carbon emissions, there needs to be some kind of financial motivation to do that. And the carbon market fundamentally is what has developed in response to that requirement. So the carbon market is essentially the platform that governments, businesses and other organisations have to uh, use to achieve carbon emissions, to have them certified uh, as a, in the form of a carbon credit and transfer those carbon reductions of, in the form of a carbon credit to anywhere in the world where they're needed. So carbon trading can occur via a, a bilateral agreement between two parties, or it can occur by looking to one of the increasing number of carbon credit exchanges, which have sprouted up in recent years. The certificate which is issued by a carbon offsetting scheme, the carbon credit, as I've mentioned, can be transferred again and again. And that's really key to, to why there is such a growing carbon market, because we typically see a carbon credit being issued once to a, a project and then going through several different transactions or trades until it arrives at the ultimate um, location where it's needed. Uh, and so there are a lot of people acting in the market who aren't necessarily looking to acquire carbon credits for their own carbon reduction activities, but are looking to trade them like any other commodity. So it's only once the credit reaches its end destination where the carbon reduction, if, if you want to call it that, is, is crystallized. And the way to do that is through cancelling or retiring the carbon credit. And at that point, it ceases to exist. But it's only at that point that the person who does that act of, of retiring or cancelling it can say, I have offset one tonne of carbon dioxide. Anyone else who has acquired it and ultimately sold it doesn't have the right to make that claim. Interesting. So my last question to you, it's going to be very interesting because, well, as arbitration specialists, we obviously have an interest for disputes. Are there any disputes arising out of this carbon trading or market? And if there are, what are the types of disputes that you have seen and how are they generally resolved? The carbon market is prone to disputes, just like any other market in which something is created and traded. The carbon market is particularly tricky because the what we refer to as the, the voluntary carbon market, so this is really what accounts for the carbon offsetting market it is essentially unregulated. So the protection that parties have when things go wrong is entirely contractual rather than having, say, statutory rights of redress. So that really sets the scene in terms of the sort of disputes that we see arise. And, and what we've seen a lot of in recent years, and I'm, I'm sure we'll continue to see, it, it, there are a number of themes. So one of the big ones, uh, which is intrinsic to the carbon market is is a failure of a carbon reduction project to actually deliver any carbon reductions. And if you don't deliver carbon reductions, you don't get any carbon credits. So in that case, it's essentially a, a complete failure of a seller to, to provide what they've said they will provide. And that could be because they've employed a technology that doesn't work, for example, but there are a range of reasons that, you know, innocent reasons why that might happen. 
Similarly, there, there may not be a complete failure to deliver, but there could be a failure to deliver the agreed amount of carbon credits. And that does happen quite often because when you put in place a, a carbon reduction project, you don't necessarily know exactly how many tons of, of carbon emissions reductions that will achieve. And so if you're entering into a long-term selling arrangement, which typically a project developer will, which is forward-looking by perhaps 10 years, you can be out by quite a significant amount um, towards the end of that. And so typically there are mechanisms within the contract to deal with that, but the parties don't necessarily always agree because there are usually some element of going out into the market to try and price what that loss represents. And then at a more basic level, uh, what we've seen a lot of is is basically parties trying to get out of those long-term um, forward selling or buying arrangements. Um, so as I've said, they, they can be 10 years plus. And the fact is over that time and over recent years, the, the price has fluctuated very significantly. And so what we tend to see in that situation is either parties wanting to get out of that situation, that arrangement, or as a party who's benefiting, you want to lock them in to, to perform those obligations. And because the law, as it applies to the carbon market, is relatively new and untested in many ways, there tends to be a natural bias towards um, the use of arbitration to resolve disputes. We really haven't seen many court cases, but there is there has been a lot of arbitration in this space. Well, this is it for this episode. A huge thanks to you, Adam, for all your useful advice in sharing with us your expertise in relation to the carbon market. And thank you for tuning into this podcast. We hope you found this discussion informative and helpful. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on reedsmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmithLLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.